The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Hi, I'm Angie Gage, and I'm one of the directors at Old Hickory Boulevard location. Um, If you belong to our Music Row congregation, it's time to click the button now um, where you'll be directed to hear um, the sermon and the Bible reading from your pastor, Stacy Croft. If you belong to the Old Hickory Boulevard or Cool Springs locations, you can stay right here with us. Today's scripture comes from John 4, 7 through 26. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for the salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Family, praise be to Christ. Well, hello, my name is Russ Ramsey, and I am the pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church's Cool Springs location. If we haven't met, I'm preaching 
for Scott today as well as for the Cool Springs location. So, hi, Old Hickory. I love this passage. This is a passage about worship as much as it's a passage about anything else. And so we're talking today in this series, this is the last part of this series, what, what, the consolation of Christ, and this message is called What Jesus Says About Worship. Incidentally, uh, we are going to begin a new sermon series next week on the Psalms of Ascent, and I'm really looking forward to that, and it ties in to this final sermon in this series because the Psalms of Ascent are all about uh, the pilgrimage of worship. The, they're Psalms 120 through 134. Uh, so 15 psalms that, that were used as pilgrim songs as people made their way to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And so we're going to be spending some time in those, and I'm really looking forward to that. Um, so let's get into this passage. Uh, I love this, this chapter in John. Okay. Michelangelo. Michelangelo is a person, I believe, was created to make art. If you've seen his Pieta or his Statue of David in particular, those are perfect. They're, they're perfect statues. To study those works is to study the work of someone who didn't just have skill with a hammer and a chisel, but he had some kind of, a, of an artistic vision that was seated deep, deep inside of him. He was famous for saying that in every block of marble there's a statue trying to get out and it's his job to set it free. But I think the same could be said of his sculptures, that, they were, that, that his sculptures were inside of him. And part of his life's work was to get them out of him. Have you ever been in the presence of somebody who is doing what they just seem put here to do? Maybe it's a musician or a chef or a painter or a poet or a storyteller. It's as though this deep sense of purpose gets activated inside them when they're doing this thing and it just comes out of them. We, all of us, were created to worship. Everybody within the sound of my voice was made to worship God. Such a simple statement to make, and yet it's also a statement that can be so easily misunderstood. When I tell you that we were created to worship God, I'm not referring primarily to singing songs. I'm not referring primarily to listening to sermons or coming to the Lord's table, journaling, having a devotional habit in the morning. Those are expressions of worship. And they're good ones. But what I mean is this. I mean that we were created to ascribe to God all the glory and honor that is due to his name. We were made to do that. To adore him as his handiwork. Celebrating in his goodness and in his grace. We were made for this. I mean like Adam and Eve before the fall. We were created to walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day in face-to-face, intimate, holy fellowship with him. We were made for this. To worship, it's, it's meant to be a kind of a return to the principles of Eden. And it's so hard to do. 
It's so hard to do, and I want to talk a little bit about why, and then dig into Jesus' exchange with the woman at the well, because we see it on display here. But it's hard to worship these days because we have turned worship, in our culture, we've turned it into a commodity. So we've made worship a commodity. We have so many choices in terms of preference. If you went out looking for a church and you wanted to find a church that was right down the middle of the plate in terms of what you like, in this city, you're not going to find one. You're probably going to find four or five that you can choose from. So we have that choice that's just abundant. We can load up the playlists on our phones uh, full of our favorite worship songs and we can see our favorite worship performers do concerts, at least we used to be able to, and we're going to be able to, again, in arenas, in sold-out arenas. We can line our shelves with books about Christian living. And we just have so much, it's just an abundance of resources. And while there are certainly great benefits to all of that, the sheer volume of choice that we have can lead us to believe that our worship experience should be a specific, personally curated experience that pushes all of our buttons. And so you can see how easy it's become to really make worship more of a pursuit of self-satisfaction than the glorification of God. To the point that we can become dismissive or even condescending of those who honor God and glorify him with their gifts and their talents. They just do it in a way that doesn't align with our taste. And right now, where we are, with pretty much everyone having to worship remotely, there's yet another degree of separation that we feel between the believer and the body of Christ. And we feel it every week, right? What, what translates on a screen in your living room is nothing like gathering as a congregation for worship. It's not nothing like it, but it's very different, isn't it? It's the difference between watching your favorite band on YouTube and seeing them live in concert. It's just not even close, and we feel it. In fact, I feel it right now. I'm standing in a virtually empty room talking to a little green light on the other side of the room. It's not the same. So here's why it's important for us to talk about the problem of turning worship into a personalized commodity. Three reasons. First, if we don't have a solid theological understanding of why we worship, then turning it into a commodity will be the natural reaction because this is what we do. Personalizing to taste is what we do with everything. We season to taste. We do it so much, we no longer even notice that we're doing it. Second, when we treat worship as a commodity, we cannot help but see our own satisfaction as the aim. And so then third, when our own personal satisfaction is the aim of our worship, we lose sight of God. Jesus seeks worshipers. That's one of the key lessons in this passage with the woman at the well. 
is he says not only that God is seeking worshipers who will work, worship in spirit and in truth, but while he's saying that, he is seeking her as one of those worshipers. God seeks worshipers who are desperate for him. He doesn't seek worshipers who have no need of him and whose only aim is to satisfy ourselves. He seeks worshipers who are desperate for him and who are hopelessly lost without him. The catch with that is that is all of us. But when we turn it into a commodity, we forget that. But this is the woman at the well. She is somebody who is desperate for him and hopelessly lost without him. So let's get into that conversation. Jesus talks with her about worship in this exchange because usually when you're talking about water, you're really talking about thirst. As Jesus was passing through Samaria, he, he came to Jacob's well in Sychar, and this woman comes to draw water, and Jesus asks her to get a drink of water for him because he's thirsty. What he's doing is, one, he's modeling evangelism for us. He's using his own thirst as an opportunity to reach out to her. Addressing a Samaritan and a woman in those days was scandalous for somebody like Jesus. Why? Well, because if we go back 700 years before, Israel was taken off into exile by invading armies. And during that time, some Israelites determined we are going to ride this out. We're going to keep our clans together. We're only going to marry other Israelites. And so that was their practice indefinitely for as long as it needed to be. But then there were others whose, whose their mind was, we don't know when we're ever going to go home again. And so they started new lives and they intermarried with their captors. Samaritans are people who descended from those who intermarried. And they came to be regarded by the Jews of Jesus' day as betrayers of the bloodline of Abraham because being half a Gentile was worse than being full Gentile. A full Gentile can't help it. But a half Gentile is somebody who some people somewhere along the way made choices. So you can appreciate the complexity of the situation here. No Israelite knew if they were ever going to go home again. And then even after the exiles, what it looked like to pick up the pieces of that catastrophe, it just looked different to different people. Is this sounding familiar? Because we're in a position like that right now in a, in a very real way, right? Nobody knows what's going to happen. And yet we have to move forward with life. And so we have to make choices of what that looks like and what that's going to look like is going to be different for some people than for others. Many of those who refused to intermarry after the exile, they returned to Jerusalem. But those who didn't refuse to intermarry, they weren't welcome back, including the Samaritans. And Jerusalem was where the temple of the Lord was. And so this woman that Jesus is having a conversation with, we should empathize with her. Because here's what's happened. Some event that was beyond her control, the exile, it broke and it divided her society. Sometimes this happens on a comparatively smaller scale 
though no less intense, like marital infidelity or a medical crisis or a betrayal or a sudden loss. Sometimes these events are shared on a much larger scale, like a terrorist attack or a hurricane or a pandemic or an economic collapse. But something fundamentally breaks or changes. And when the dust settles, we can't return to life as we knew it before. And so we have to figure out, what does it look like now? What is, what is the new normal? And this, finding the new normal, is sacred ground, right? That is sacred ground because it's complicated. You need look no further than your Facebook page to see that this is sacred ground for people and it's complicated. We feel as though we have no definitive map as the event looms like a fog and we can't see through it and we can't see past it. And this is what happened in Israel during the exile. When they were carried off, each person had to wrestle with the possibility that they might never come home again. Then what? Well, the Samaritans, they, they rebuilt. And they built a place of worship. They built it on top of Mount Gerizim, not Mount Zion, apart from Jerusalem because they weren't welcome in Jerusalem. And so what they did is they came up with a new version of their ancient faith. And that was a scandal to Israel. The other scandal that's in play here in this passage is the fact that Jesus is talking to a woman. It was considered not only inappropriate for a rabbi to address a woman, but many said it was a waste of his time. The commentators agree that this woman's presence at the well alone at that time of the day suggests that she was a woman with a bad reputation, perhaps a prostitute. And if Jesus wanted to sit in judgment over her, he would have plenty to work with. But what we have to notice is that Jesus is the one who starts this conversation. Jesus is the one who does this. Frederick Buechner said this. He said, if we are to love our neighbors, before we must do anything else, we must see our neighbors. With our imagination as well as with our eyes, that is to say like artists, we must see not just their faces, but the life behind and within their faces. See, we share something in common with this woman at the well. And that is, just as Jesus knew everything there was to know about her, so it is with us. He knows everything about us. He knows our stories. He knows our thirst. He knows our thirst for peace. He knows things that might cause others to avert their eyes if they were to know it about us. And she's doing what we do in times like this. She is protecting herself through sarcasm and being a bit bristly. She's making Jesus earn the moment. She's even mocking him a little bit when he says that he has this water. And she says, you don't even have a bucket. Jesus knows that she's getting indignant. He also knows her thirst. And so he tells her about the water he has. And he says, everybody who drinks the water I give will never thirst again. 
In a word, Jesus is turning the conversation from water to thirst, which is what a conversation about water from a well is anyway, right? It's a conversation ultimately about thirst. She'd been talking about a quantity of water, but Jesus has been speaking the whole time about the quality of thirst, her thirst. And so she says, perhaps dismissively, one of the things we don't get in scripture is we don't get tone of voice. We don't even really get punctuation. But she says this, well, why don't you give me some of this water? It'd be nice to not have to come here every day. And Jesus stays with her. How much receptivity does a person need to display for us to continue to offer them something good and true? Do you see what he's doing here? He's He's not cutting through her facade to shame her or to rebuke her. What he's doing is he's drawing her in. He's offering her something. He's offering her a life that is free from thirst. Her her mockery is a defense mechanism to keep this religious man away from her sacred sorrow. But Jesus presses through her sarcasm through a seemingly benign conversation about being thirsty. But what he does is he gets to her heart. And how does he does it? How does he do it? He goes through a wound. He gets to the heart through a wound. He says to her, go get your husband. She doesn't have a husband. Jesus says, I I know, you've had four, and the man that you're living with right now is not your husband. Now he has his finger on the wound, doesn't he? Imagine, Imagine her sorrow. Imagine the things that this woman has been through, the things that she must look at in her own life and say, was it supposed to be this way? Is existence as a human being on this planet supposed to be so hard? Is it supposed to be so fraught with suffering and grief and relational brokenness and societal brokenness? Am I supposed to wake up every day and look across the hills and know that the people on the other side of the horizon hate me? Imagine her. Imagine her shame. Imagine the words that have been whispered about her. Imagine the things that she might have done. Imagine the things that must have been done to her. Imagine how this woman must have negotiated with her pain in an attempt to make some kind of peace with it. Jesus knows that we do this. And he tells her, you don't have to live thirsty. You can have peace and I can give it to you. Notice at this point, the woman turns the conversation to, of all things, theology. Right? She she turns the conversation to worship and which mountain they should worship on. And she explains to Jesus that she embraces this unorthodox faith of the Samaritans and she's asking Jesus in her question justify me and I love how this goes because we live in a time right now where one of the prevailing 
attitudes toward Jesus in a culture that doesn't know him well, thinks that Jesus is just on the side of whatever we like, right? And so if there's something I like, a way that I vote, a way that I shop, a way that I believe, a way that I think about whatever social issue, and it feels like the right one to me, then Jesus must be on my side. But when this woman explains to Jesus that she embraces this unorthodox faith and he asks her to justify it, how does he respond? He tells her she's wrong. (laughs) He tells her she's wrong. He does it in a gentle way. But he says, you worship what you don't know and Jews worship what we do know. And I love that he does this because what we're seeing here is Jesus cares at the same time about broken people and fidelity to truth. He cares about broken people and doctrinal fidelity. And he does not endorse inventing belief systems because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he says... Later on in this book of John's gospel, he says to love him is to obey him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So he tells her she's wrong. But then he tells her the time has come when true worshipers will not gather on specific mountains anymore. This conversation is obsolete already. But true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. What's that that a reference to? That's referring to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who would inhabit God's people making us, not buildings, but us, the temple of the Lord. This is what I mean when I say we were meant to worship and we were made to worship. We're not just made to engage in a list of worshipful activities, But when I say we're made to worship, I mean it in the sense that we are not only people, we're not people who just go to a temple. We are the temple of the Lord. Jesus says we aren't just meant to go to the temple from time to time. We're meant to become the temple of the Lord in every moment. And so even now, even now as we watch this service happen on a screen, the room where I am standing, a big beautiful sanctuary, is not where the Spirit of God resides. He does not reside in this room. He resides, he resides in you. He resides in you when you've drunk the living water of the grace of Christ. In this passage, we see that we are sought after by God to be in his presence. Jesus knows this woman. He knows all that she has done, all that she has been, all that she has been through. And he engages her. He engages her. Why? Because he wants her to become a worshiper in spirit and in truth. The time is coming and has now come when God's people will worship him in spirit and in truth. And he's engaging her for this purpose. Why? Because that's what she was meant to be, a worshiper. The gospel would ring hollow if he just said, go get your husband. 
But he says, get your husband and come back here. And it's that last part of the statement, which is such a beautiful picture of his grace. Because the get your husband line was for her conscience. It was to let her know that he knew what her life was like. But the come back here part, that was for her heart. So I want to ask you this question. If you're the woman at the well, put yourself in her position, and you have this conversation, what is Jesus asking you to go get, to bring back? In other words, what do you turn to to try to satisfy your deepest thirst? For her, it seems to have been men. He wants you to own whatever that is. A computer, money, a reputation, an achievement. He wants you to own whatever it is, an unfaithful relationship, and come back to him and worship him. You were made for a relationship with God. And this is a God who knows you. And he will, he promises, he will take away your thirst. The insatiable, unquenchable thirst. How does Jesus take away our thirst? I close with this thought. This woman came to the well thirsty. What was her deeper thirst? And how did Jesus take it away? Well, in the same way that he takes away the thirst of all those who come to him. John writes about it later in his gospel. In chapter 19, he writes these words. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Jesus took our thirst for peace with God and he crucified it. He took our emptiness, he took our pain, he took our fear of trusting others, our rebellious hearts, and he died with all of that on his shoulders. And when he rose from the grave, defeating the power of death itself, he gave us new life, life in his name, bearing his reputation, belonging in his family. And then on top of all that, he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And for this, we were not only made to worship, but by his grace, we are also able to. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for the call that you have given us to worship you. You are, 
gracious in calling us to this. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, who sought people like the woman at the well, a woman we will see in glory, whose life was changed in a moment because of a thirst, not just a physical thirst, but a spiritual thirst. Father, help us to see the places in our own hearts and lives where we have turned worship into a commodity for the purpose of self-satisfaction. Cause our hearts to repent of that and to rest and lean upon you, knowing that our hope is built on nothing less than your blood and your righteousness. O oh, Jesus, our cornerstone. It's in your name we pray. Amen.